This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title of Christian, uh, Christian Fundamentals. And the special subject this evening is a part of the series on redemption, number four, dealing with the Jubilee. It is our habit in this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Leviticus Chapter 25, verses 1 to 41. A great deal of this chapter is devoted to the laws that were in operation in Israel and belong particularly to them. But at the same time, like the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Jubilee has far-reaching witness for all those who are redeemed, whether they belong to Israel and the Kingdom, or the church at the present time. I suppose most of you at some time or another have read Psalm 89 and come across the words in verse 15, Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. Well, when those words were written, it didn't mean any sort of joyful sound. It meant one particular joyful sound. For that refers to the jubilee. Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound of that trumpet peeling out at the end of 49 years when the shackles drop, when the distance is cancelled, when the inheritance that was forfeited is restored and every man returns to his family and his possessions and goes out free. Why saying those words is almost giving in everyday language the glorious epistle to the Galatians where he says, Stand fast, therefore, to the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. So this evening, we are going to consider the Jubilee and its bearing upon the purpose of the ages and a part of the great purpose of redemption. Now, when we read this Leviticus 25, it's very possible the repeated words have already left a mark on your mind. Every now and again it says, in the Jubilee it shall go out. It shall go out, or this one will not go out. Well, if we read it many times, you'll begin to say to yourself, this word Jubilee seems to be continually associated with going out. Well, yes. Our English word in the, in the Bible is J-U-B-I-L-E, one E, uh, but we have enlarged it in the ordinary language, and we say jubilee. The Hebrew word is yubel, with no e on the end of it, and that means, just that means to go out. Go out in all sorts of ways. First of all, if you, if you look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 8, there you have the word jubilee, but of course, in a verbal form, and just ordinarily translated, going out. Exodus 14, 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with an high hand. Well, that's just the ordinary Hebrew word, Yobel. They went out. So the one insistent meaning in this word jubilee, the release, the return of the possessions, is a going out and leaving behind all those elements that, that needed redemption to set them free. Uh, again, in uh, Exodus 21, while we have Exodus with us, 
21, 2 and 3. 21, 2 and 3. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out. So he has a little miniature jubilee. At the end of the seventh year, not waiting for seven times seven, if he's a Hebrew servant, he goes out. And if he came in by himself, he shall go out. Jubilee, Jobel, go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So you see, there was a sort of an anticipatory jubilee. Like today we have golden weddings and silver weddings and over in some parts of the world they have tin ones and zinc ones and wooden ones. But we also have a jubilee and then a diamond jubilee. You see, extra ones. Well, this is a, not a longer one, this is a shorter one. But it's still carrying with it the idea that the end of the seventh period is the day of release. There's a good many criticism passed upon the book of Genesis because it seems as though it ties down God that he had to work six days and rest on the Sabbath day. But the reason why that was done that way was because that was the beginning of a whole series of these number sevens that ended in a Sabbath. Perhaps you'd be interested to know that the word for seven in the Hebrew language is the word that is used in the psalm, I shall be satisfied, or he shall be, he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Number seven. Because number seven in God's word simply means satisfaction. We've reached a goal. And that satisfaction is based upon redemption. For he shall see of the travail of his soul. It'll include Gethsemane. It'll include the scourging and the crown of thorns. It'll include the very horror of crucifixion. And he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. If you're not satisfied with the results of redemption, blessed be God, he will be. Isn't that marvellous? Well now, that's the idea behind this word. Now the first occurrence of the word in the scriptures, this particular word that means jubilee, in that particular form, I can't go into the grammar and tell you one's an adverb, one's a pronoun, I don't know what, that doesn't matter. But here we have it, Exodus 19, verse 13. Exodus 19, verse 13. There shall not a hand touch it, but it shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount, that it was on Mount Sinai. This is a forbidding thing, preventing anyone getting near because of the holiness of the God who was giving the Ten Commandments. But, there's the, there's the trumpet, sounding long, and that trumpet that sounded long, which was there for the first time, sounding on Mount Sinai, the mountain of con condemnation, the last occurrence is found in um, Joshua chapter 6, where we have the people of Israel, now far beyond Mount Sinai, over the other side of the river Jordan, and manifesting the triumphant issue of their redemption. Joshua chapter 6, verse 4. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times. 
and the priest shall blow with the trumpets. And that occurs in verses 4, 5, 8 and 13. Verse 13. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rearward came after the ark of the Lord and the priests going on blowing with the trumpets. And then you remember, they went round the city walls just once. And on the seventh day they went round seven times and then the walls collapsed. From one point of view, it must have looked a bit idiotic. A besieged city. And instead of bringing up catapults and battering rams and scaling ladders and all the artillery they used in those days, these little people are marching round the wall blowing little trumpets because you mustn't think of a, a sort of a band that you hear coming along the street, brass instruments and cornets blazing away. No, if you heard a ram's horn, it sounds... You see, it's like that um, uh, record you may have heard of somebody standing in front of one of those great engines at Boulogne before it went right down to the south of France and then it, it went, uh, you see? But that's the idea. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And the ram's old trumpet was merely the way in which God echoed, uh, brought in this thought that now the day of Jubilee has come. That's the last occurrence of the actual sounding of the trumpet of the jubilee in the scriptures. But you see, it's stamped with the same idea. Seven days and the seventh day, seven times, and then down went the enemy's walls and in went the people into their possessions. Of course, then the story takes another turn because it was only tight and they failed continuously. But one day, the jubilee is going to be the real thing. And instead of the walls of Jericho going down, It'll be, hallelujah, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. And in the book of the Revelation it says, and they sounded the seventh trumpet. And a voice said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You see, that's the way in which it's written. The whole Bible can be said to be a book of jubilee. And of course I was tempted once in a very different audience to say, you believe it, but that's very, very bad to say that. So, I'm only telling you what I might have said. Now then, the next point is this, that when you turn to the Greek scriptures, the Septuagint, you discover that the word translated jubilee is aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S. And the word means literally to set at liberty. Now, this word occurs in Leviticus 25.10, of course I'm referring now to the Greek version, Leviticus 25.10, and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty. You see, that word. Thou shalt proclaim liberty, that is the word aphesis. And if you will turn to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you get the prophetic way of speaking of this jubilee. I think we'll read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll see the way in which it is used in Luke, the fourth chapter. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The acceptable year of the Lord that also is a title of that great day of jubilee that's coming. So we've got now a, a, a link with New Testament statements. But before we turn to that, will you look at the 63rd chapter, verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. This is the year of his redeemed, the acceptable year of the Lord. Well now, if you come just for a moment to Luke the fourth chapter, you'll see that our Saviour quoted those words in the synagogue at the opening of his public ministry. It's valuable in many ways. It shows you that the Isaiah that was in use in the days of Christ is identical in its reading with the one we have today. You say, well, of course it would be. Well, there's a good many people say that it's been so chopped and changed and rewritten uh, that we haven't got any idea that the Bible we read today is the one that was given to those people. Well, here are two verses that are practically identical word for word. One we've quoted from the Old Testament and one we quote from the New. So we'll give it a chance once again. Verse 17, Luke 4, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, <coughs> The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then comes a stop. Isaiah goes on to link together the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But Christ shut the book, sat down, all the people sat up because that was a strange thing to do, and then he said, I have enclosed the book. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Because he couldn't say to them, this day is the day of vengeance. But he could say, the acceptable year of the Lord has come. Now there are those who have said by computation and by observing some of the movements in the Gospels, that our Lord's public ministry commenced in a jubilee year. Because in a jubilee year particularly, the masses of the people would be on holiday. And wherever you go in the first part of Christ's public ministry, there were crowds of people, no need to try to find whether there was anybody there to listen to an open-air meeting, they were there everywhere. And when he said, the acceptable year of the Lord, and this day is this scripture fulfilled, I have a feeling that he was right, that it was true, it was. The acceptable year of the Lord. Well now this word Ephesus, translated the, the release, the day of liberty, the jubilee, comes into our epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians. And so we must turn to it, even though you may know it already, we must be sure that those who are listening to us will have the same advantage. Ephesians 1 verse 7 In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins that's the word Ephesus that's the word deliverance and setting a captive free 
under the terms of the Jubilee. So although we are not Jews, and we are not waiting for 70 times 7, or 7 times 7, or any particular time, yet we belong to that company, who come under that redeeming wing of Christ, and as sure as they were set free from their bondage, so shall we be. And as sure as they will one day have their possessions restored to them, so shall we. So will you look at verse 14 of this same epistle, chapter 1. He speaks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Here, what's that? Well, there you are, you read Leviticus 25 with regard to the, the, the possession that had been forfeited, that was now redeemed, that comes back to the original owner in the day of Jubilee. It's much the same type of teaching. So that although we don't build all our doctrine upon the types and the shadows, those types and shadows are there to give us a tremendous amount of information that we would do well to uh, ponder. And then once more, in the epistle to the Hebrews, this word, Ephesus, which means to be delivered, to be delivered from bondage, is found in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. That word remission, to remit, is the idea of being set free from all obligation, cancelled sin, and everything that goes to make up bondage. Well now, let's come back again, shall we, to the um, institution of this jubilee, and notice a few features. Uh, uh, Turn to Leviticus 25 that we read just now, so that we may peg it down onto what is said. Leviticus 25, verse 8 onwards. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years. I stop there, because in the ordinary way, an English person doesn't use the word Sabbath when it means simply seven times something. A Sabbath of years. You say, well, what's a Sabbath of years? Well, when you come to the great prophecy of Daniel 9, when it speaks about uh, 77s or 70 Sabbaths or seven Sabbaths, it's the same thing. So keep that in mind for future reference. Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. And then if you don't know what seven Sabbaths are, it says seven times seven. And then if you don't know what seven times seven is, it says, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. You can't avoid it, can you? Seven times seven, or forty-nine years. And thou shalt cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. Now, what's the tenth day of the seventh month? A look a bit um, uh, back into this you get the emphasis upon the Day of Atonement. I think in chapter 23, where you have the whole set out of the festive year of Israel, uh, verse 24, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, 
and holy convocation. And then in the 27th verse, also on the 10th day of this 7th month, there shall be a day of atonement. A day of atonement. And that day of atonement is one of the most solemn of all Israel's observances. Even to this very day, you will find a person that you never suspected to be a Jew. You'll suddenly say, well, where's so-and-so? Oh, it's the black fast. I see. He never stays away from business any other day. He doesn't observe the Sabbath on the Saturday. But once a year, until he breaks with Israel completely, he's there on the Day of Atonement. So it's the Day of Atonement when the Jubilee trumpet sounds. You see the point of Hebrews? Without the shedding of blood, no day of jubilee, no remission. And of course those words would mean something to the Hebrews for they would know it. But I think it's well for us to know it. There's so many false ideas about that you can get round God. You can just appeal to his kindness and get through. But he's warned you in more ways than one. There was one man who gate crashed into a wedding. And people do that today, you know. And the king came in and he said to this man, How camest thou in hither without a wedding garment? And I don't know whether he prepared a long argument about it, uh, but when he got an opportunity, the man was speechless. And he said, Take him out. You see, and it's the Lord who told that parable. So unless you know the equivalent of the Day of Atonement, unless you know him, who died that you might live, that your sins may be forgiven, you may be cleansed and have access and acceptance, you'll never be numbered among those people who are blessed by God, who know the joyful sound. But on the other hand, every single one of us that have put our trust in the Son of God, who can say the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, we're already anticipating that joyful sound. And the Jubilee awaits us with its redeeming grace, its liberation, its returning of possessions, and all those things that made that such a memorable time. Well then if you will turn to Daniel, the ninth chapter, you will see that there is a, a sort of a anticipation in the days to come that Daniel was speaking about. Now, on this chart, which you have in front of you, there is an attempt to visualise this. First of all, the column under the word prophecy. You see, I've got four columns there. The Jubilee has a bearing upon prophecy. It has a bearing upon the church to which we are members. We've touched upon that. The hope before the Lord's people and then the doctrine, the sinner's jubilee as he hears the joyful sound of sins forgiven. Well now, Daniel the ninth chapter, not a very easy chapter at any time, but very difficult to cram in a few minutes. I always remember uh, when I went to Switzerland, France and Switzerland many years ago in connection with <coughs> the Berean Expositor and certain translations and reprints, I visited some friends in Neuchâtel. I went into the room, they were all sitting there. My eldest daughter, Wynne, was with me. 
Uh, she was about 16 at the time and just fresh from school. And of all the subjects to meet the people that you couldn't speak their language of arguing about Daniel the ninth chapter, and I was in the middle of it. And all my appeal to win with regard to the German words or French words, they all fell down because I knew that my aunt had some pens in the garden, but then they were no good to be when the time came to speak about Daniel the ninth chapter. Well, here we are. Here's a prophecy. But this is the, this is the uh, gent of it. The gist of it. Verse 24. Daniel 9. Seventy weeks. Now, we've already been prepared that a week or a Sabbath, that's the same word, a week may be used in Hebrew for a week of anything. We couldn't speak about a week of apples. So we must say seven. But they could use the word week for any period of time, so long as the, the unit was seven times. So seventy sevens are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So within a period of seventy times seven, all that the Jubilee stands for is going to be brought about in reality. Now, here are the stages in it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Now you remember earlier the scriptures added up for you what the seven times seven came to. But here they haven't done so. So everybody rushes in and tells the angel, well of course what you really need is uh, 69 weeks. Because it says seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So of course the poor angel couldn't add that up so he puts it down like that. Well, then we take away the very division that God has made and get ourselves in a glorious tangle. Because the angel meant what he said. He said, from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, you've got to first of all reckon seven weeks. And when that seven sevens are over, the wall will be built and the people will be restored as a people. Now start reckoning to the coming of the Messiah. But of course they don't. They put the whole lot in. Well, then all they've got left is just one week for the book of the Revelation and so the Acts of the Apostles goes clean out. But they're wrong. The angel knew what he meant. And after three score and two weeks, that is to say, after the end of that three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off and have nothing or not for himself. And so the prophecy goes on. I won't go further because of our time. I'm not dealing with that prophecy particularly. I'm only saying that prophecy has the jubilee in view. And the great prophecy of the book of the Revelation as the jubilee in view. When the seventh angel sounds, the jubilee is reached. The kingdom is set up. And Babylon falls, not Jericho that time. But it's the equivalent. Well, we've already touched upon its application to the church in Ephesians. Where we looked at Ephesians 1.7. The word jubilee coming in Ephesians 1.7 where it speaks of the forgiveness the release from the bondage of sin and the restoration of the purchased possession going back uh, to the kinsman redeemer for its full explanation. But now let's look at the way in which we have 
Some of these references incorporated in the hope of different callings in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is one aspect of the second coming of Christ. Verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Now we haven't, not so long ago that we read the encircling of the walls of Jericho. And if you were, uh, uh, if you had read that chapter right through, you'll find that Joshua gives a command and he says, nobody's to make that shout until the command is given. But when the command is given, shout! And the walls go down. It doesn't mean that they shouted so much that the walls went down because of it, but that was a signal. I cannot believe that that very important little type in the book of Joshua is completely forgotten when this is written. A shout. And then it says, with a trumpet, the trump of God. Well, the trump of God again is there. The sounding of the trumpet of the seventh day after the seven times walking round. So we've got now another feature brought in uh, the, the jubilee entering into the question of hope. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, that turn back a little bit, where it speaks about the hope of the believer. 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks about the time when this shall take place. Verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Well, that's very similar to 1 Thessalonians. Some will be asleep, some will remain and be living. But whether you're asleep, or whether you're living, you'll have to be changed. So there's no difference between one and the other, ultimately. Not one of us, as we are, are fit for glory. We must all be changed. And if you know yourself, as other people know you, you'll only be too thankful that that is so. We should all be changed. And then here, it's interesting to know, is the only occurrence of the word atom in the Bible. This word moment is the unsplittable period of time. Because the word atom means something you cannot split. A, kendo. So now we speak about splitting the atom. And there we're off again. This is in a split moment before you know in the exact and it's all over and you're in the glory. That's how God is going to treat us. In the twinkling of an eye. Wonderful thought that, isn't it? That God should slip that in too. The twinkling of an eye. And of course it's scientifically true. However rapid the camera may be that you're using, you don't have to say to the person now, stare hard, don't blink. Because in the ordinary course, you just blink and clean your eye, but it's so rapid that it doesn't make any difference. The twinkling of an eye. That's two ways of telling you it won't be a long, drawn-out, dismal, painful process. Before you know where you are, it's all over. 
at the last trump. Well, the only way in which you compute which is the last one is to find the last one in the Bible. And the last one in the Bible is the seventh one. And the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And then the glorious goal is reached. At the last trumpet. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so we have victory sounding in verse 55. Well then, you remember there are other passages. There's Romans, the 8th chapter. We must give them all a turn, however, briefly. He says, verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature, now that refers to creation, not merely a creature, but creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same. Complicated words, but judgment was passed upon creation. When man fell, creation went with him. If people grumble because weather seems to be out of joint, they're keeping just in harmony with everything else. The world is out of joint. Mankind is out of joint. The seasons are all muddled and mixed up. But when the day of glory dawns, all those things will go in harmony together as we get the marvellous pictures of the day that is yet to come. But we share it in hope because creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, namely the redemption of our body. So there's the jubilee again. A complete redemption, not merely of spirit, but of body. And ultimately in resurrection glory. And then, looking further, we go across to the, the epistle to the Galatians, with its doctrinal teaching. We must get just a word or two in there. Galatians particularly is very concerned about freedom and liberty. If you'll notice in chapter 2, the apostle said that when he went up to Jerusalem to put before those there, that gospel which he preached among the Gentiles, he said, I did it privately to them that were of reputation, because otherwise I'm sure it would have been spoiled. And verse 4, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Some people's conception of Christianity or their interpretation of what they call religion is just changing one form of shackles and fetters for another. You come out of the bondage of sin, you come out of the bondage of legalism, and then they put you into denominational straitjackets and they try to make you subscribe to things and wear things in your buttonhole so that you're badgered and badged at the same time, fetters put on again. This man said we'd have none of it. So in chapter 5, he rings out those words which we do well to remember. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. 
And if you look at chapter 4, he says in verse 8, How be it then when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of, of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. So here's the emphasis. All this emphasis upon bondage of sin and observances and the flesh, gone. And stand in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6.20, the apostle refers to this question of bondage, slavery, in some other form. We might just give it a chance to speak. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, they're wonderful words as they stand, but you cannot quite get the thrill of those words as some in that Corinthian church would, because if you've seen the photograph of, a, of the wording of the manumission of a slave, if you can ever see Dyson's like from the ancient East, you'll see it, that those words are actually seen inscribed in stone with the name of the slave that was liberated. A slave, given the name, given the name of the master, at a certain date was bought with a price and is now free. And a poor old slave in the Corinthian church would say to himself, oh good, oh good, I've been saving up my pennies all my lifetime to try to purchase my freedom and the Apostle Paul says, I'm bought with a price already. And he says, if you can get your freedom, use it rather. And if not, remember, you're Christ's free man. All oh, the heart must have thrilled many a time with some of those poor creatures when they realised that there was a freedom and a bondage that nothing else could touch or equal. So you're bought with a price. And then we have been... Um, the uh, Romans, the 8th chapter, we must go back to that just for a moment, for another, another point. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Leave the rest of the verse out, that's coming presently. For the law of the Spirit of Christ, life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Here's all this jubilee element, keep on coming into the gospel. And so, we have the last verse I have down here. I think we've just got time to quote that. Exodus 21, verse 2. Exodus 21, verse 2. We've already read it, but we'll give it a reading once more. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. And in the seventh, he shall go out, that's number one. Free, that's number two. For nothing, that's number three. All remember it. He shall go out, free, for nothing. Now there are some people always have their texts like this. Firstly, my brethren. Secondly, my brethren. Thirdly, well it's all ready for you, friend. If you put your trust in the Redeemer, you go out, that's number one. You go out free. That's number two. And if you don't know what free means, you go out for nothing. That's number three. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Amen.